Thank you for joining us for the Lessons from First Naz podcast. God bless you. Great to be with you this morning. It's always a privilege for me to get to come and share from Scripture with you. This morning, I have a couple of quick announcements that I make just by way of housekeeping. Remember, save the date, July 22nd through the 24th. We're planning a family camp out, and that'll be up at Camp Sanders, where Children's Camp was this last year for our district. And so I'd love for everybody to come and be a part. You can, you can come bring your family. There's a few spots for campers. If you have a camper and you want to bring your own RV, there's lots of cabin space for families, for single folks, for whoever you, uh, whoever you come with. We can, we can accommodate you. So that information will be coming out soon about that. I'm trying to confirm a couple more details. I'll just give you a, a tease, though. I did confirm this week that our worship leader will be Katie Largent, and so excited for Katie to be a part of that week, and so come and be a part of that. Save the date. Put it on your calendar, July 22nd through the 24th. Also, let me remind everybody, we get together on Thursday mornings via Zoom for prayer at 6 a.m. That link goes out to our prayer list, so if you're not on our prayer list, get on the digital bulletin and find out how you get to be a part of that, or you can talk to me after the service, and we'll make sure you get onto our prayer list. This month, I've been talking about topics that are often overlooked, but are nonetheless very important in the life of the church and in, in our lives as people who live in this world. And so I've talked about money, and that was really fun, and I talked about sex, and that was embarrassing, and this week, I'm talking about politics, and I think of all of the topics that I'm talking about over the course of this month, this is the one that has potential to get me in the hottest water, because, you know, money and sex, it's uncomfortable. It's, you know, we might cringe a little bit. We might not uh, want to hear what the preacher has to say about those topics, Politics is the area where we have the strongest opinions. And this is where our, our personal opinions are deeply held, aren't they? And so I had started the week thinking, I'm just going to make everybody mad. I'll just, I'll just come and I'll just, I'll just plan on making everybody mad and then um, I'll just hide. And uh, I'll, I'll just walk out that way and... Uh, I'll just leave, and we'll see what happens over the course of the week. I, I, I think what I ended up writing is, is hopefully not just for the purpose of making people mad. Uh, if I do make you mad, I love you, and it's not because I want you to be mad at me that I make you mad. If I, if I make you mad this morning, I pray that if you're made mad this morning, you're made ba- mad by, by something from God's Word that that confronts with, with uh, some, some beliefs that you might hold or ways you might feel about things. And, and so, I, uh, and I hope it's equal opportunity. I hope it's equal. I hope it, people from all over the spectrum of politics come away mad at me, uh, if, if anyone. So we'll see. We'll see, won't we? I've been trying through the course of this month to give a 30,000-foot view of Scripture and what Scripture has to say about each topic. And with, with politics, I'm going to do that by looking historically at how God's people have lived under a variety of political systems. And I am, I'm going to look then at how the church specifically has looked at our role historically in politics and, and how the church should, should consider ourselves in, in a government, a world that depends on, on politics. Like we, we depend on, on political systems and, and on government that includes politics. So how, that, how the church lives into that. I hope I accomplish that. We'll see. So I'm, I'm using for a 30,000-foot view of Scripture an outline that comes from a book. About 10 years ago, a Nazarene scholar wrote a book called uh, A Charitable Discourse, and his name is Dan Boone. He wrote this book. The, the subtitle of the book is Talking About the Things That Divide Us. And he gives a helpful summary of Scripture and how, how God's people have lived in different political, political uh, realities over the course of being God's people. 
And Dr. Boone identifies six distinct types of government that we have lived in as God's people. He, he says, first, we, we've been slaves in Pharaoh's Egypt. And he, he asks us to identify ourselves in each of, these, each of these places as God's people. And as slaves in Pharaoh's Egypt, we, we began to identify with the powerless and cry out on, to God on behalf of the powerless. We, we understood in Pharaoh's Egypt what it is to, to have our rights stripped away, to be marginalized due to nothing more than our, our identity, our ethnicity. And in Exodus, God's power is on display. God's power is on display mightily. God's power brings a, a slave-making nation to its knees on behalf of the most vulnerable and weakest in, in society. And so God constantly reminds his people throughout Scripture of this reality. You were slaves in Egypt. You were slaves in Egypt, and God worked mightily so that no longer do you have to be slaves to anyone. And then, after being slaves in Egypt, we, we have been a loose federation of tribes with no central government. We see this in the books of Joshua and Judges, where God's people get into the promised land, they begin to, to establish themselves in the promised land, and they kind, of, they kind of just loosely affiliate with one another. There's no, there's no central government during the period of the judges and, and during the book of Joshua. Joshua is the strongest central leader that we see, but then occasionally there's an outside crisis that causes God to rise up a, a leader, a charismatic, a, a God-called leader who unifies the people to deal with these outward, outside conflicts or outside problems that threaten the nation of Israel. And so we see, we see there is an important time of coming together. And then after the outside threat is dealt with, God's people go back to being a loose federation of tribes. And the, the constant refrain in the book of Judges is, everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And so there would be, there would be a revival. People would return to God. People would, would look to God for their help. And then people would go back to doing what was right in their own eyes. During this period of time, God was supposed to be king over his people. God wanted to be the king. This is, this is theocracy is uh, the proper term for it, where God is king. And as God wanted to be king and there wasn't a king on earth, the people thought that they could take care of things on their own. Well, after that, we, we have lived under the king that we begged God to give. The, in, in the book of 1 Samuel, we see the story of the people saying, we want to be like other nations. We, we want to join the, the federation of other nations. We want, to be, we want to be people with a king like the other people of the earth. And so the Lord gives, God's, gives his people a king, and he warns them. He warns them when he gives them a king that a king is going to have a standing army, and he's going to enlist your sons to, to fight for him and to, to serve him as soldiers. A king is going to want to build a palace. A king is going to want to employ uh, government workers and bureaucrats and, and counselors and people to, to help him run the country. A, a king is going to centralize things around himself. In other words, a king is going to create a government, and governments are expensive. And so not only is a king going to do all these things, a king is going to tax you, and you're going to have to pay for all these things that, that the king wants. And God's people say, we still want a king, and, the, and God gives the people a king. The king was always supposed to be God's agent on earth. The king was supposed to be God-appointed and anointed by the priests. And so the king was supposed to, to walk hand-in-hand hand with God. This is God and government walking hand-in-hand in, hand in the Old Testament. The, the unfortunate reality is that many of the kings that came into to leadership in, among God's people wanted to do things their own way. And so, in spite of them being appointed by God and given the position that they're given by God, they, they walk their own way. And Israel ends up with a line of bad king after bad king with maybe a good king mixed in, but then bad king, bad king, bad king. 
and, and just a handful of good kings that, that bring about good things and, and return the nation to looking toward God. But over and over and over again, the reality of God's people is that the king says, I want to do whatever makes me the wealthiest and the most powerful and not necessarily what God calls me to be. And that succession of, of bad kings brought God's people to what is known as exile. And exile is a different form of government. Exile is a form of government where God's people are taken from the promised land into the city of Babylon. And they were, they were hauled away to live under this powerful pagan government. The Babylonians didn't make God's people slaves. The Babylonians let the people live in Babylon as, as basically free people. But they, their assumption was that anybody who was conquered by Babylon would obviously see that their culture and, and their gods were more powerful and better than, than the gods and the culture that these, these conquered people had come from. And so their assumption was that any, everyone would want to basically become Babylonian, would want to assimilate, would want to live as, as the other Babylonians lived. And so God instructs his people to remember their identity and to pray for the good of the city of Babylon. God says, as Babylon's fate goes, so will yours. And, and they were reminded that they, they continued to need to seek God. They needed to continue to keep their identity based on, on their relationship with God and who God is, and not fall prey to the, to the forces in Babylon that would assimilate them and make them Babylonian. We see that there is danger in this. In the stories of the book of Daniel, we read about the danger and, and the, uh, the problems for the people who resisted Babylon's dominant culture. In the New Testament, we, we begin the New Testament with God's people back in the promised land and living as a majority in their own land, but under Roman rule. They're a majority in their own land, but they're under Roman rule. And this is the story into which we, Jesus came. Jesus found himself among God's people under Roman rule, the majority in the land, and Jesus saw that there were all kinds of reactions that God's people had to this. Some of God's people said, we got to get out of, out of Jerusalem. The, the Romans are here. We got to get to where we can be ourselves. And they moved to the desert and they lived alone without the Romans telling them what to do. Some people were in Jerusalem saying, what we really need is to start a war with these Romans and then God will help us and kick the Romans out. And we'll have our, our own land to ourselves. And then some Jews said, no, what we need to do is we need to work within the Roman system. We need to manipulate the Romans. They'll never know that we're doing it. And we'll trick them into making the world the way that God wants it to be by working in their political system. Jesus saw all of these different reactions to, to Roman rule among God's people, where God's people were the majority in the land. And, and Jesus said, yeah, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to establish my own kingdom. I'm not going to ask for permission from the Romans. And he didn't ask for permission from the, the Jewish gatekeepers either. Jesus said, I'm going to establish my kingdom, and my kingdom is going to be the, the way that I follow. Finally, in the New Testament, as, as the New Testament closes, we see God's people as Christian minorities in cities and nations where they were citizens. They were citizens. They were, they were fully participating members of society, but often under suspicion. They're often under suspicion. So we see in the, the New Testament, Paul wrote the majority of the letters that we read in the New Testament as a citizen of the Roman Empire in prison because he was a Christian believer. John wrote the, the book of Revelation from, from the island where he was exiled from the nation and, and left there, banished from society. The book of Acts is the story of the growth of the church against all odds, against persecution. First, for when, when Christianity was just a tiny sect within Judaism from, from the Jewish people and then from the Roman Empire. And, and so as we look at these six different ways that Scripture has, has placed God's people, that history has seen God's people under government, under, under rule, under authority, and with authority at times, and, and making government, 
we, we realize that our reality today isn't perfectly encapsulated in any of these. We, we find ourselves in a different, a different political time, a different political situation. We, we can't say, ah, well, we, we act like, the, like God's people did in this period recorded in Scripture. We, we don't have a perfect, a perfect, perfect place for us to, to find ourselves but as, as Christians uh, who engage in the world and, and live in a world that has politics as a part of our lives, we, we can occasionally be swayed into believing that the gospel, the gospel mandate can best be, best be carried out by us by using political processes. And this is, this is an idea that I, um, I think we get confused a little bit uh, at times as believers. We get confused into believing that the gospel calls us to, to impose our, our, our ideas on the world rather than to live our ideas out in the world in a winsome way. And so if, if we consider what God asks us to do, we, we need to understand what God really wants us to do in the world. As people who interact with, with the society around us, what does God want from us? And... and I believe the best place that we should go as Christians to look at what God expects from us as, as human beings who interact with the society around us and interact with, with the culture around us. The, the first place we ought to go to is, is those parting words of Jesus to his disciples in the Great Commission. At the, at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus has died and has risen from the dead and he meets his disciples outside of the city and he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go and make disciples of all nations. I want you to baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. And I want you to teach them everything that I have commanded you to do. And the early church went about doing this the way that they had seen Jesus do it. Jesus, they, they, they continued to do some of the things that Jesus did. They, they would go into synagogues and teach the message about Jesus. They would, they would gather in homes for prayer together. And they would gather together frequently for meals. They would share their resources with one another and try to meet one another's needs. They, they would remind one another frequently of the teachings of Jesus. And this is the pattern that we see in the church throughout the New Testament. God's people trying to, to continue the lifestyle that Jesus taught them to live. And, and so they go on having a public ministry that is mostly rejected by the culture around them. Uh, at often, oftentimes in the New Testament, we see the public ministry of Christian people uh, making, them, making them a threat to the political authorities. And they find themselves at odds with the political authorities, going to trial, being placed in prison. And then they have a ministry within the community, the body of believers. And that ministry in the community and body of believers is this this mutual, frequent fellowship, this gathering together for, for prayer, the, this community where, where, by God's grace, their spiritual and physical and social needs are met. In, so as we, as we look at the way the New Testament church lived this out, uh, as I was thinking about this this week, a quote came to mind that I've read, I read a while ago from... from uh, author named John Howard Yoder. Yoder writes about missions. He's, he's what we call in the church a missiologist. So he writes about missions. I, I read a lot of, of John Howard Yoder's stuff while I was a missionary. I realized after I was a missionary for a year or so, I didn't know anything about being a missionary. And so I started reading about what it means to be a missionary. And so I, I read a lot of John Howard Yoder because he's a name I, I, I liked. I like what he wrote. Yoder, Yoder says this. He says, It did not occur to the New Testament church to use political power in favor of the gospel. It did not occur to them. And he says, Because, because it was not available. <laughs> so it did not occur to them because it was not available. Which is an interesting idea. What, what, would, have, what would they have thought if it had uh, occurred to them? Well, he says, if, if it had occurred they would have said no, just as Jesus did. It's an interesting idea. My, my initial reaction was, how's Yoder know what the early church would have done? <laughs> how's he know? Uh, 
And then my, my next thought was, wait a minute, Re- they would have rejected it like Jesus did. What, what's that all about? How's that work? And it took me to, to the idea, uh, it took me to the temptation of Jesus is where it took me. In, in Matthew chapter 4, uh, I'm looking at Matthew chapter 4 a little bit this morning. In, at the beginning of Matthew chapter 4, Jesus goes to the desert and, it, and he fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. And, and Matthew tells us at the end of that time, he was very hungry. And then in, in verse 3, we, we read this. During that time, the devil came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus told him, No, the scriptures say, People do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So this temptation to Jesus is to, to provide for himself, isn't it? It's, it's for Jesus to, to alleviate a little bit of the suffering. Forty days of, of not eating, his stomach was hurting. He was ready for food. Any morsel of bread would, would be so tempting in this moment, right? And so Jesus, Jesus is tempted in this moment to provide for, for his, own, his own need, his own personal provision. And Jesus rejects this temptation with a simple quotation from Scripture, right? People do not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so the devil tries, recognizes that Jesus used Scripture, and he says, ah, but there's this Scripture that maybe I can tempt Jesus with. And we read in in verse 5, Then the devil took him to the holy city, Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple, and said, If you are the Son of God, jump off, for the Scriptures say, He will order his angels to protect you, and they will hold you up with their hands so that you won't even hurt your, uh, your foot on a stone. Jesus responded in verse 7, The scriptures also say you must not test the Lord your God. And so this, this temptation appears to be for, for Jesus to question his identity first. Is he the one that that scripture was written about? You know, Jesus maybe is questioning, is, is he really who he believes God is calling him to be? Is he really, really the one? And then the other temptation is, will God really come through with his promise to me? If I'm really his, his Messiah, is, is God really going to protect me like, like Scripture says? This is almost taking us back to the first temptation in the garden, the idea that the, the devil said, did God really say? Didn't God say? Did God say? And, and here, the devil is using the same, the same idea. Did, did God really say that he would protect you? And Jesus understands that the devil is twisting scripture. And so he, he corrects this temptation with a correct interpretation of scripture, with scripture interpreting scripture. And, and Jesus says, well, the word of God also says, you must not test the Lord your God. And then in verse 8, we, we see that the devil takes yet another tactic. In verse 8, next, the devil took him to a peak of a very high mountain and showed him the kingdoms of the world and all their glory. I will give it all to you, he said, if you will kneel down and worship me. Verse 10, get out of here, Satan, Jesus told him, for the scriptures say, you must worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil went away and the angels came and took care of Jesus. Jesus rebuffs his temptation in a similar manner. He uses scripture, right? But before Jesus uses scripture, he says, get out of here. This is the last temptation that Jesus allows the devil to use. This is the last straw for Jesus. And maybe it's just a preacher getting too deep into an idea and a subject and too invested in something, but I've allowed myself to be convinced that this, this temptation is, is like right on the edge of, of where Jesus maybe is weakest. This, this temptation is maybe right on the edge of, of where, where Jesus doesn't know if he has the ability to continue to, to carry through. And he says, get out of here. He's done with temptation at this point. He is not going to be tempted to take power anymore. 
If we look at the progression of the Gospel of Matthew from here, just a few verses down the page in verse 17, Jesus comes onto the scene and he began to preach, repent of your sins and turn to God for the kingdom of heaven is near. Jesus is establishing his kingdom. What better way for a person who's unknown, who has no power, what better way for for a person like Jesus, who comes from the wrong town and from from a family that no one expected a king to come from, a carpenter's son, what better way for, for him to start a kingdom than to accept all of the power of all of the kingdoms that he could see from a very high mountain. And just maybe, just maybe there is in this temptation, the, the seed of, of temptation that could, could work on someone who is trying to, to establish something new. Jesus goes on, if we continue on through Matthew, we, we get to the Sermon on the Mount in, in Matthew chapter 5. The Sermon on the Mount begins with the, the Beatitudes, with this, this reality that God blesses people who don't look very blessed. And, and that the people who, who God really, really takes into his arms are the people that others would not expect to, to be taken into God's arms. And then after the Beatitudes, Jesus talks about the role of God's people in the world. In verses 14 through 16, Jesus says, You are the light of the world. Y'all, you together. You people, those of you who have come to listen to my message, you are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father." The followers of Jesus are, are called to live the kingdom of God lifestyle in a way that is a light, is, draws people to, to Jesus and, and points people toward Jesus, that it gives them understanding of who Jesus is. Jesus goes on and talks about, you, you do this by fulfilling the law. And he says, yeah, I, I'm not here to get rid of the law, I'm here to fulfill the law. And Jesus interprets the law through the rest of of the Sermon on the Mount. And he interprets the law not in a way that works. This is is an interesting notion for us. We think that Jesus came with some pragmatic answers for the problems of life. The Sermon on the Mount is perhaps the least pragmatic uh, teaching in, in the history of humanity. Jesus tells us, instead of hitting somebody back when they hit you, turn the other cheek. That is not teaching that works for a happy life and a life without two black eyes, right? This is, this is a life of making yourself vulnerable and trusting in God to protect you and God to vindicate you. Jesus', Jesus instructions on the Sermon on the Mount are not so that the believers will have some way of living in this world that works. This, this teaching is so that the believers in Jesus would reflect the character of God to the world around them. This, is, this teaching, the Sermon on the Mount, is about, is about living in a way that reveals God in this world. This is the everything I have commanded you of the, good, of the Great Commission that Jesus, Jesus told his disciples to teach them everything I have commanded you. This is it. This is, this is that we would, we would live not with fighting back is at every enemy that we can, can imagine, that, that we would live faithfully in our relationships, that we would be honest people, that, that people would be able to trust our yes and trust our no and believe that we're telling the truth, that, that we would be loving even toward our enemies, that we would be generous without expecting payment in return, without looking for praise, from other people, or even gratitude, that we, would, that we would trust God to provide for us, that we would depend on him, that we would judge others in a kind and merciful way, 
the way that we want to be judged. And all of these things, according to, to the way I understand Jesus' purpose in the Sermon on the Mount, are, are so that we would, we would reflect his goodness, that we would be the light of the world. That the world would see his beauty and the glory of God. None of it is going to work <laughs> in, a, in a pragmatic way to, to, make us, to make us the people that are, are getting all kinds of power. That are, are taking, taking uh, the world by storm. But all these things show who God is to the world. In the early church, in, in the New Testament, we see God's people trying to live this out. And, and in a lot of ways, it doesn't work, right? They get sent to prison. They get beaten. In a lot of ways, it doesn't work. But also, in a lot of ways, God's people fulfill the Great Commission. They go about making disciples. They go about teaching uh, all of the things that Jesus taught his disciples to obey. And... and in very short order, the world, by those early Christians, by the movement of the gospel, the world was transformed. The, the world was, was upside down because this small group of people who believed in this man who supposedly died and was crucified by the Romans, this small group of people had spread out everywhere and took over, and, and people were drawn to, to this guy that Died on a cross, Roman cross. And, um, and you have to kind of ask yourself, like, what happened? <laughs> what happened between that, that early church that was transforming the world and today? Uh, what happened where, where we look around us and we don't see a world particularly transformed by the gospel? There's a lot of us Christians living in this, in this world now. And it and it doesn't appear to be, it doesn't appear to be a world that reflects the values of the kingdom of, of the Sermon on the Mount. It it appears to be a world where people are doing what works, which is not turning the other cheek, not going the extra mile, but looking out for ourselves and trying to, to do what's best for us, trying to buy our way to happiness. What happened? Well, historically, we could go to all kinds of places and place blame anywhere we want, really. You know, as a, as a child of the 80s and 90s, I want to blame baby boomers, right? You baby boomers, you're all at fault. Um, the, it, as soon as we adults get old enough that there are voting viable members of society young enough, we, we want to start to, to blame them. It's this generation, isn't it? Right? Can I get an amen? This generation, if they would just do what's right... Man, the world would be so much better. This generation just wouldn't keep messing things up. If you want to get away from finding fault in the living, we could go back. We could go back all the way to Constantine, 313, the Battle of, of uh, Milvian Bridge. Constantine was converted to Christianity. And he, that year, he made Christian a legal, legal religion in the Roman Empire. And then, uh, a few decades later, Christianity became the official, the official language or uh, religion of the Roman Empire. There, historically, there has been a problem for Christianity. Christianity has not has not done well where it is politically advantageous to be Christian. There, there is a there's a trend that happens when when it is politically advantageous to be Christian. Nominal Christianity begins to, to arise. In parts of the world where it's not politically advantageous to be, to be Christian, Christianity tends to thrive. Christianity tends to thrive when, when being a Christian is, is a choice to follow Christ rather than a choice to get ahead or to have people think well of you because the rest of the world thinks you're Christian. And so, <clears throat> historically speaking, the, this, this moment of Constantine making Christianity legal and then, and then decades later becoming the official state religion is, is a hard point, hard point. And, and we love to blame Constantine. I mean, he's not here to defend himself, so why not, right? 
And we, we as Christians, um, we've tended to be a bit confused about this. Uh, we, we have tended to think, no, 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 no. It's a, it's a good thing for our culture and for our world to be, to be Christian. It's a good thing for, for those in power to be Christian. And, and so what, what has happened is that as believers, we've said, we want Christian leaders. We want Christian leaders. And we've been willing to accept Christian leaders or leaders who say they're Christian. But we have not demanded that their lives appear transformed by the gospel in any way. We've said, if you will vote in a particular way, if you will make policies that make me happy as a Christian, then I will vote for you. You've got my vote if you say you're a Christian. And we're guilty of this on every side of the political aisle in, in the church. In, in the left, the, the left has, has looked toward the prophets for, for guidance on what our politics should look like. And the, the prophets say that we need to care for the downtrodden, that the rich need to help the poor, that we need to seek justice for the powerless, that we need to avoid war. On the, on the right within the church, we've looked to the wisdom literature as, and, and we've wanted politicians who, who would, um, would make people accept personal responsibility, who would value a work ethic, who would give just rewards for good decisions. And we are guilty of this all over the church, of saying that person says they're a Christian, that person supports my beliefs that I read, you know, maybe in the wisdom literature, that, that person is supporting things that I see. Or maybe, maybe in the prophets, that person sounds like somebody who is going to, to do what the prophets say. And we've had a low expectation of our leaders if they simply will take the name Christian and take our, our, our personal, personal values within the small set of texts that we say are our values. And, and it's been hard for our, for our leaders to continue to live as Christians in our political system. Our political system is not created for good Christian people to go in and, and not be formed by the political system. Our, our political system is, is built on making enemies. Our political system says if, if you can demonize your opponent enough that other people are afraid of what's going to happen if your opponent gets elected, then you will be elected. A business that is all about making enemies it makes it hard for people to love their enemies and pray for those who persecute you, as Jesus tells us to do on the Sermon on the Mount. And, uh, you know, it's really, con it's, really, it's really satisfying to consider who's to blame at this. <laughs> it's, this is a fun part, right, to think about, oh, who could we blame? Who could we, who could we say it's a, is at fault for all of this? But really, we're left to deal with the reality we find ourselves in. It's not particularly helpful to, to blame, uh, and it doesn't particularly get us any closer to transforming our culture. E. Stanley Jones, another, another missiologist in the church, a, a guy who wrote about missions, he died almost 50 years ago. He died almost 50 years ago, and he wrote these words that, that could have been written today. He said, we inoculate the world with a mild form of Christianity so that it will be immune from the real thing. The aim of such inoculation is security. Not security in Christ, but security from Christ and from having to rely on him and the shape of his kingdom to give meaning and significance to our lives. We, we have looked for security from Christ. The security from Christ has, has come as, as we have looked for political power to, to make us look like light, to make us light. Uh, it, it, has, it has come as we've given lip service to Christianity and, and said, in the name of Christianity, we want these laws to be, to be so. But we've never actually expected others to be transformed by the gospel simply because we impose gospel principles on our culture. And this is, this, this sort of, I mean, E. Stanley Jones wrote this 50 years ago. He, he could have written it. I'm sure our, 
are the, the first Americans after the founding of the nation would have read this and said, Amen, E. Stanley Jones. We read it today, 50 years later, and, and we say, oh, man, we see it. We see it in our world where we're, we're satisfied with a, with a shadow of, of the kingdom, of, of a, a, a facsimile of kingdom values at times being present in our society. As, as Americans, we, we, we love the idea of our, our nation being founded on, on these inalienable rights, right, of life, liberty. These are, these are self-evident. This is self-evident truth. But unfortunately, from these self-evident truths, what, what we seem to have found is, is more self-centeredness than self-freedom. We've found loneliness. We've found superficiality. We've, we've found consumerism as, as a means to try to satisfy the longings of our soul rather than, than the gospel. And so we have a, col- an air that, um, we have a culture that has an air of Christianity, but it lacks discipleship. It lacks authentic transformation in the likeness of Jesus. It, 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 uh, it accepts as the norm a religious life that doesn't make one a crazy religious person, <laughs> right? This is really what we want in our culture, is, is some religion, but boy, we don't want those crazy religious people now, do we? Let's not be crazy religious people, shall we? And, uh, and so what do we do? What do we do if this is, if this is our rea- reality? Maybe, maybe the answer is that we should, we should move into the mountains of Idaho and cloister ourselves. We could sell everything here. We could move up. I bet, I bet behind Kamii we could find enough property that we could all, you know, have a little hovel and support one another. We could do that, you know. Some have tried. Uh, we, could, we could do that. Should we, uh, I mean, we can. <laughs> uh, Paul, there's, there's an argument for this in Scripture, honestly. Paul, Paul says, like, you should order your life in such a way that you can prioritize prayer and discipleship, doesn't he? I mean, there's, you could focus on that. But when we go back to Jesus, uh, we, we see Jesus sending his disciples into the world so much. You can't, you can't think about Jesus' interaction with his, with his followers without thinking about him sending them, sending them into the world. At one point, he, he sends his disciples out. He says, I send you as sheep among wolves. So be as gentle as doves and as cunning as serpents. Jesus prayed for his disciples on the night that he was betrayed. His prayer was, that they would go into the world, but that they would not be of the world. And the example that's set for us in the New Testament, first in the words of Jesus, then in the early church, they, they point to a faith that won't surrender the created order to the devil and to politics. We see a faith that that sees Jesus as hope for everyone. And, and that in Jesus' death and resurrection, there, the beginning of the end has already come. And so if the beginning of the end has already come, it is our responsibility as, as believers in Jesus to get as many people to Jesus before the end finally, finally arrives. And so the church has to live in the society, has to live in this world, as people transformed, we, we, cannot be, we cannot be duped into believing that by political power, we will point people to Jesus more effectively. The gospel, the gospel is too powerful for that. The gospel is too beautiful for that. The gospel is too creative for that. It's, the, gospel, the gospel is... is this amazing message that, that doesn't depend on the powerful to spread it. That doesn't depend on, on some earthly human plan 
to make it make it appealing to people around us. And so for for the gospel's sake, we we need to continue to live the kingdom principles. This way that doesn't work according to the Sermon on the Mount. And and to to be willing to to look ridiculous, to trust in God when others would say it's foolish to trust in your God. For the sake of our nation, we can't withdraw either. For the sake of our nation, we we need to continue to to engage in in our world. We can't we can't fool ourselves into thinking that any human government anywhere at any time is going to bring about the kingdom. But we we can still continue to be Christian people who who engage in our world at a real level, as authentic as authentic believers. Christianity invites us, though, to take seriously the call to be citizens of the kingdom of heaven. That it, as believers, we are first and foremost citizens of Jesus' kingdom. We are first and foremost subjects to King Jesus. And this life, being subject to King Jesus, it's, it's so much more interesting than a life that says, I need to figure out who I can vote for so that we can be in power. It's so much more satisfying than a life that says, I better turn on the news tonight to find out who I should vote against. It's, it's so much more, more an adventure than a life that says, I gotta, I gotta protect this little niche of my, my subset of society against anybody else. It's a life that is, it is given over to Jesus, given over to, to the kingdom, to live unafraid to turn the other cheek, unafraid to go the extra mile, unafraid to let our yes be yes, even when it's costly, unafraid to let our no be no, even when it makes us really uncomfortable to stand by that no. And so our political task in the world is, is to be the church. It is to be the church. It is to be these people who are transformed by this message of Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount. To be the church toward one another, especially. To show love and mercy in the, in the body of believers, to our brothers and sisters. And to do everything for the glory of of God. So, so, we ought to vote. <laughs> we ought to continue to vote. We ought to, we, we probably shouldn't buy that property up behind Kamei just yet. Don't, don't confuse voting with evangelism or discipleship. Christians who vote are people who pray for the people they vote against. Christians who vote are people who love the people who voted for the other candidate. So vote. But don't vote believing that the world depends on the the outcome of this next election. No, the world doesn't depend on the outcome of this next election. Live as if the eternal fate of your neighbors depends on the way you live. That's what's really important. It's interesting to be, to be aware of what's happening in the politics in our country and in our world. But what the kingdom calls us to is to, to live as if the eternal fate of those around us depends on how we live. So let's live that way. Let's let voting take care of itself. We pray for those who, who are wrong in the way they, they use their vote. <laughs> and we'll pray for our, for our leaders, the ones we agree with and the ones we disagree with. We'll pray for the people around us. And we'll pray for one another. And we, can, we can live in such a way that we might transform our community.
Will you stand with me and, and let's pray. Oh, our Heavenly Father, we, we love you, God. We love you. We, we thank you that uh, you invite us to this adventurous life. This adventurous life that, that is given over to your will. Given over to your will, whether it's comfortable for us or not. Whether we think we can do it or not. We are given over to, to do what you call us to do, God. Whether it works or not. And so, Lord, we pray that you would, you would continue to help us to grow in our willingness to submit to you alone. That we would be willing, God, to, to turn our lives over to you, to live this crazy way that would, would call, us, uh, call us to be a light in this world and make us a light in this world. God, I pray that we would love one another in this body well. Those we agree with and disagree with about a myriad of topics, Lord, I pray that we would love one another, that we would pray for each other, that we would care about one another. I pray, God, that you would stir our hearts. Because even within the body, Lord, we, we have vast, diverse opinions. We, we have... We have feelings about issues that are very different. And so God, help us as, as a mixed body to, to be unified around Jesus, our Savior. Help us to recognize that he is the only hope for the world. To not get confused and deluded into thinking that the hope for the world is a particular political candidate or party. Or a, political, or a particular law being passed or not passed. Lord, help us to believe. Help us to be brave enough to believe that Jesus is enough. That the transformation that Jesus can bring to people's lives is enough. And help us, Lord, to, to live in such a way that our faith would, would shine and draw people closer and closer our Savior, Jesus. Lord, go with my brothers and sisters into this week. May they, may they truly walk in your spirit. May they truly know your pleasure for them and your goodwill for their lives, Lord. It's in Jesus' powerful name that we pray. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for, thanks for being a part of our worship today. You are dismissed.